Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week, a big weekend news. Uh, we had Apple with kind of their second big event of, of the year. They had, uh, you know, normally in a fall season, they'll do one major event where they'll announce, announce products and, and other announcements across their full suite of offerings in a single event that they do live. This year, of course, they're doing them all virtual, and as a result, they broke them apart. I, I'm guessing also they probably broke them apart because I imagine that the iPhone was somewhat delayed because of, of COVID. This is something we've been talking about throughout the podcast uh, for many months now, is that, uh, that COVID really has impacted new product introductions and made those uh, windows longer. And so I think Apple did a great job here of covering up some of those delays with uh, breaking out it as a, as a second announcement and capturing a lot more of the news cycle as a result of that. Uh, and well. and they, I, I think they may not even be done for the year because I think that the arrival of the Apple Silicon-based Macs would certainly merit uh, an online virtual event. And uh, there have also been rumors that they're going to compete more directly against Tile with this AirTags product. So, um, uh, you know, and, and, and there have also been rumors of, of new AirPods uh, in development. It's been a while for that. So those three things would certainly merit a, a third uh, event before the end of the year. But, uh, but of course, we're running out of time. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we had a, had a third event as well. I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting is uh, can they deliver all of these announcements in time for for holiday shopping and, and holiday delivery. And the iPhone is, uh, you can pre-order it starting this week, but it isn't shipping until the end of the month. And and arguably, I imagine some of that will, uh, will get backed up. And so uh, if you do want an iPhone for the holiday season, consider, uh, you know, buying that, buying that early. But let's dive into what we saw at the iPhone announcement. The, the big announcement, of course, was the introduction of the iPhone 12. Uh, it, uh, at the 6.1 inch screen, moving from a LCD screen to an OLED screen, but the uh, same size screen as we saw in the uh, previous versions of the iPhone, the 11 and, and the XR. Uh, a big announcement as part of the iPhone launch was that they are introducing 5G now. Uh, which Ross, you and I have talked a little bit about on the podcast before. Neither of us really thought that they would uh, be, shall I say, early to the 5G game. That they'd let things settle out. That they would uh, let the you know the networks mature a little bit. We did see that uh, Verizon's CEO Hans Vestberg joined the the Apple event, if you will, if we virtual event, and uh, announced the nationwide launch of their sub. 6 5G network uh, so that uh, you know coincided well with the launch of the 5G iPhone. Uh, arguably anybody buying this phone probably won't be using 5G very heavily and uh, if they they will be there's been a lot of reporting by Jeffrey Fowler and others that suggest that maybe the, the, the uh, service that you're going to get from that 5G experience at least early on may not be a, a, as good as you'll get later on. Uh, so, so we'll see how meaningful the 5G 
piece of it is it feels like uh you know 5g needs the iphone right now at least as much as iphone might have needed 5g the uh i I think the paradox on the verizon announcement was that you know uh, apple has supported the verizon millimeter wave uh very fast 5g standard throughout the iPhone 12 line, uh, unlike some companies, uh, particularly on the lower end, that have uh, supported only sub six. So here they are touting the advantages of the faster flavor of 5G while also announcing the availability of this slower version of 5G, albeit one that offers far far better coverage because uh, the, uh, the very fast Verizon 5G is limited to very, very uh, small patches like football stadiums, public parks, uh, things like that. All, all the stadiums that we're not currently visiting. Well, exactly. Don't that, need was, great that, coverage that, and... that was a tough one to calculate, but uh, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll give Verizon a, a pass on that one. No football pun intended. No. Uh, yeah, well, and <laughs> and I, I did, I think I did see that the uh, millimeter wave support is only taking place in the U.S. That, that won't be... Uh, uh, supported outside of the U.S. So uh, as soon as we do get back to these large public venues, then we'll be able to take full advantage of that. And, and actually, uh, there are a lot of really, I think, fascinating, compelling use cases for 5G in these in these stadiums. The ability to get replays in real time, unique camera views, uh, the access to services, checking lines, looking at parking lots. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of, I think, additional information that people want when they're in these large crowded venues. And arguably, coming out of COVID, if we do get back to a time where we're in these these stadiums, I think that we're going to want access to even more information, you know? And and so if if 5G can deliver that, um, you know, another aspect of 5G that is compelling both for for manufacturers and employers, but also in these large stadiums will be AR, presumably, and virtual reality, mixed reality. Uh, We saw a big announcement as part of the iPhone that they're embedding in the the 12 Pro LiDAR scanner to uh, provide more compelling, more fully encompassing uh, AR features. And in fact, Snapchat announced that they'll have a, a special filter just for the iPhone 12 Pro to really take full advantage of that uh, of that lidar, uh, so I think that there's some really interesting things uh, to see come out of out of that. It's uh, it's certainly a, a great potential feature, and uh, Verizon uh, did a good job of highlighting some of those use cases that you mentioned, Sean. But but I think there was a missed opportunity in terms of AR. Here's something that Apple has clearly been building a franchise around. They uh, have the platform lead in terms of augmented reality. Uh, I would have liked to have seen an application of AR on 5G. I, I am pretty bullish on that. Uh, as a as a as a usage driver uh, for 5G, whereas most other uh, things are are a lot more incremental. Yeah, and it it will be interesting to see how much of that shows up in the home. I mean, maybe some of those experiences show up when you're in these again, kind of large. Yeah, even venues. in the venues, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense there. But actually, I think the real opportunity for AR over 5G is going to happen in warehouses in manufacturing facilities, in transportation hubs, like 
uh, a, a lot of those areas, I think 5G will, will have a compelling experience, especially if you look at manufacturers that are employing or, or will start to employ uh, private networks, private mm -hmm. 5G networks in these facilities, and then to be able to deliver AR experiences for their employees for their staff, for their workers to make them safer, more efficient, more productive. I think there's some really compelling things there as well. I would argue that's not really Apple's sweet spot, at least yet. I mean, they're still, I would say, a very consumer-centric kind of uh, uh, experience, at least what they might show in their keynotes. And so um, we, didn't, we didn't see any... To, to your point, they, they highlighted some of the Snapchat AR filters, but it still, uh, I would say, is very consumer-centric. Yeah, I, I would say that they don't promote it at the keynote because it's yeah. not very sexy, but they are very much a force, I think, in enterprise mobile. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then other big pieces of the iPhone 12 were the upgrades to the, the camera. I mean, we mentioned the, the LiDAR scanner already, uh, but going and introducing a, a RAW Pro um, feature so that you can uh, essentially have greater fidelity of, of your photos. Um, I, I always am reminded whenever they tout the, the, the capabilities of the, the phone, uh, you know, the phone as a camera, how little that was a defining feature early on in, in the days of the original yeah. iPhone. And, and Steve Jobs almost glossed over it because it was such a poor camera early on. It was pretty on. bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think they started getting serious about it until about the iPhone 4. Yeah. So, but, but RAW, I mean, RAW is a good example, the RAW format and what you can do with it and this new Pro RAW format. I mean, it really is a pro feature. It's not just a, you know, I want to take better photos kind of feature. Yeah. So um, it, it, it is an interesting example of highlighting something that does not necessarily have broad relevance uh, at, at their keynote. I saw Joanna Stern tweeted out uh, what would be a, a, a awesome power move from Apple would be at the end of the keynote to announce that they had recorded the whole thing on an iPhone 12, and uh, and arguably they, a lot they probably of it was. could do that. Yeah, sure. Um, so a, a lot of announcements there. Perhaps one of the uh, the some of the other big announcements to come out of as it relates to the iPhone was the um, uh, change in, in form factor and how they are building in the uh, um, MagSafe. So you see- Oh a, yeah, MagSafe was very cool, yeah. A whole new suite of accessories will come yeah. out of that. So essentially for those of you not familiar with it, the MagSafe, MagSafe is a magnetically attached um, piece of the you know of the rear of the device so that you could magnetically attach wireless chargers you could um essentially all of the things that we might attach to our phones today like the uh the little wallet you know credit card right. carrying cases right because you, you need a place to keep your apple card that's right so you yeah. could put you could put don't want to lose that <laughs> you could put that in a, a magsafe uh friendly device and then you know today we use uh, we essentially stick those to the back of our cases and our cases clamp around the edges of the, uh, of the device. But in a MagSafe world, these things might just attach on and off easily. 
to the back. I, I can imagine some in-vehicle accessories that could be really nice. Sure. If they could already, already been announced, yeah. already been announced. I mean, I, I think this is going to be the biggest thing to happen to iPhone accessories since the, the dock connector, you know, we used to have all these dock accessories. Yeah. With and, the 30 uh, pin uh, dock. I'm, exactly. Right. A lightning. I'm not going to say that it's, um, uh, going to really realize the vision of the modular phone that, that Motorola tried, but, um, uh, but I think it uh, it gets us closer to that idea and and allows the kinds of things that people really want to attach to to their device as opposed to anything that can be attached. Yeah. So we'll see a, a whole slew of accessories uh, come out of that, and and probably a lot of chargers because they also announced that they would uh, they're no longer shipping uh, the uh, charging block with the uh, with the iPhone. Um, and they're no longer shipping any headphones with the iPhone to improve their en- environmental footprint. They've argued, though, uh, I I also think here there's probably some economics at play. The um, Apple tends to use a lot of air freight for their products. They manufacture them outside the U.S. and they air freight them into the U.S. Air freight costs are high. We've talked a little bit about this in a still in a post-pandemic world as people don't travel and that took out a lot of the freight capacity. So you're, you're looking at pretty high shipping costs that, that Apple's having to, to deal with here. So I think that uh, probably hurts them a little bit. Yeah. Cutting, smaller, cutting smaller boxes. Yep. So cutting costs more. Yep. any way they can. I mean, it cuts weight even a little bit. Sure. Um, sure. So all of those things combine. Um, and then the other big announcement was the introduction of a HomePod Mini at ninety nine dollars. Uh, Ross, for for uh, since the beginning, we've talked about HomePod when they originally launched the HomePod, and uh, w- you know we talked. I remember talking about it on a podcast where uh, we thought they were really differentiating their service at the time with a high fidelity speaker. And, and they were going to bring to market a high-quality speaker when we weren't really doing a lot of additional things with these HomeBot agents besides you know listening to music or listening to news, listening to podcasts, things like that. Uh, and then in the, in the time since they launched the HomeBot till now, obviously the market has developed significantly. So... Well, what do you see Apple telling us with the introduction of a $99 HomePod mini? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first off, I think it's a, a great example of Apple's world before making this huge multi-service play and after making this huge multi-service play. We've talked many times about how they've uh, uh, worked with Amazon to bring their music service uh, to uh, lower cost uh, echo speakers, uh, but now they've decided that they can play there as well with some degree of quality. I mean, this thing is a quarter of the price uh, of the original HomePod, uh, and uh, I don't think it's any accident that this holiday season, Amazon, Google, and Apple all announced $99 uh, speakers. And in fact, uh, it's funny, the the HomePod mini essentially looks like an upside down uh, version of the new Echo speaker or 
you know, the Echo speaker looks like an upside down version of the HomePod Mini, depending on uh, your perspective. Uh, and uh, and so it, it it just to me really shows uh, that you know Apple is is getting far more aggressive about value. Now the other interesting thing about it is that uh, much as uh, Amazon has done, uh, they've done an excellent job of making it an integral entry point into the home network, home control, um, all, all kinds of integrations. Uh, and, and the most impressive one that they showed off was something called Intercom. Now we've had similar features on uh, Alexa devices and, uh, and uh, to a lesser extent on Google devices, but here was Apple's chance to really show off the power of its leadership in, in a range of categories so that when you issue and a request or a broadcast around your home uh, through the HomePod Mini, you can receive that request on essentially any Apple device that your other family members may be using. Other HomePods, AirPods, uh, iPhones, uh, Apple Watches. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it, was, it was one of the best demonstrations I've seen of, of the power of their family of, of devices and how well they can integrate them. Yeah, and, and that is definitely something that Apple brings to the table. Uh, I actually use the Alexa announcement feature or the drop-in mm -hmm. feature uh, all the time with my kids. If I'm out and about, I might send them an announcement and that blasts to every Alexa device we have in the home, something like go out and mow the lawn or you know something else. Um, they'll, they'll call me from the Alexa, but... Uh, but the seamlessness by which you can do the use the intercom feature if you have an iPhone together with the HomePod is is very compelling. Uh, I do wonder if they've you know clearly to me the ninety nine dollar price point now in the game is an acknowledgement that they misread where the market was was going um, or at least that the market or it could didn't, be a reaction to the current market conditions. Yeah, that the yeah. market didn't go where they wanted it to go. Um, right. And, you know, and they still don't have, so for example, the HomePod still doesn't support Spotify. So if you're an Apple Music oh. user, then, you know, it's going to be a great solution for you. If you're not Apple Music user and you're a Spotify user, then the HomePod's not a great you know, op option for you. So well, that that may that may have been a strategic decision. Though, sure, not, I'm not sure to, it was, yeah, sure. but it yeah. but it shows the, the sphere in which Apple, uh, you know, looks like. It, clearly, Apple could make it Spotify enabled if it wanted to. It chose not to, and so, so it really tells you who they're positioning this product for. And whereas Amazon has positioned their product for. Hey, let me get this into every single possible room that I can. I mean, they make they, right. make, they make an Alexa that's designed for, to be put in a hallway and has you know small attachments on it. Like, why why you would ever need a digital agent in a hallway when you could have it you know in in, in all of the rooms around that hallway? Uh, but but they design well, because because they don't have that phone piece and they don't have that smartwatch piece. So. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. So they so they need to be they need to have a proliferation of devices in every single room. Um at the same time, they you know, they they are open to a lot more services. They're tying into every piece of hardware that they can tie into and um you know, and including some in which they brought in-house like the Ring and and other things they brought in-house. So 
uh, it you know will be interesting to see how Apple responds to that. Obviously, they have HomeKit and some other things, but I'm I'm not convinced that it it has the reach that the Alexa does. Uh, to your point, as a communication network, it's probably a, a smoother, more seamless experience. Uh, will be interesting to see how health plays into that. I, I mm-hmm. can continue to be convinced that Apple, you know, Apple's big play is is health. I think Amazon eventually will have to move into health when you're as big as Amazon and you have to grow sequentially quarter on quarter in order to keep shareholders happy. You've got to enter some really big markets. And, uh, you know, healthcare eventually will will be one of those markets. So at, at some point, Apple and, and Amazon, while they they do compete for some of the same markets, will really be competing for, for that market at some point. And, and just to build on your contrast, Sean, I, I would say, uh, you know, probably the slickest thing Apple showed off was uh, the UWB ultra wideband uh, radio built into the HomePod mini allows it to do fun things like uh, notice when an iPhone is nearby uh, and and allow, you know, vibrate the phone to initiate uh, communications between the HomePod mini and, and the iPhone. Whereas, to your point about Amazon always being relatively open to competitive services on its devices, I think that comes from kind of a retailer mentality of give the customer what they want. And, you know, even as they were building Prime Video, uh, they were always very good about having Netflix uh, on on their platform, you know, because they realized that that was uh, a killer feature. It was uh, something that that customers had to have. Uh, uh, One other thing I wanted to mention about um, going up market and down market uh, was uh, mentioning the iPhone mini, uh, which uh, was right. represented a, a lower entry price point uh, for the iPhone 12 product line at $699. Uh, however, the iPhone 12 comes in at, I believe, about $100 more uh, than the iPhone 11 uh, was available. And uh, that reflects... Um, uh, a strategy that they pursued with the iPad uh, in, in their recent launch, where the i the baseline iPad stayed the same price, uh, but the iPad Air, which was the mid-range offering, became uh, closer in capability to the high end and received a price bump uh, to to reflect that. So, so they either want you know they definitely for all we've talked about uh, Apple becoming more aggressive at the value end of the segment. Uh, they are. They continue to push up that those mid-range offerings in, in terms of price to, I guess, try to preserve uh, profit margin uh, to uh, to the street in part. Yeah, and they and they have these conflicting these conflicting priorities where they need a proliferation of devices in order to to uh, really drive services as they've built out mm-hmm. this service yep. strategy over the last year. They need to have a lot of screens. In fact. I wouldn't be surprised if eventually we see HomePods with screens on them. Uh, we have them from Google. We have them from Amazon. Sure. And if you're offering any type of TV service, which Apple now is, uh, you're going to want to have it on as many screens as you can. And so I think that uh, you see this in their phone strategy. In order to really leverage the service strategy that they've implemented, we need it on a lot of devices. So we need to have 
shall we say, lower-priced phones available, but not so low and not so great that they cannibalize these higher, you know, higher-priced premium products. And and it does force them in some ways to continue to to innovate at the high end. So we saw a lot of really interesting things. You know, the, to me, the lidar scanner showing up in the uh, in the pro. Um, is, is a way of differentiating at the high end and also giving a, a sense of what will eventually come presumably to the low end over over uh, some period of time. Uh, in, in other news this week, the second story we thought we would jump into is uh, the launch by Zoom of on Zoom. This week they had their uh, their user conference and uh, the, the developer conference, I suppose. And um, they had two big announcements. One was the introduction of uh, an app marketplace. Uh, they're calling them Zaps. And, uh, and then they also launched on Zoom, which is their event platform, allowing pretty much anyone to charge for events and, and to collect revenue for events. Now, I went and looked at that uh, today prior to our, our podcast, Ross. And um, I, if I was in the mood for a, a yoga yoga session or, you know, some other kind of... Meditation? Yeah, me, yeah I don't know if meditation. meditation was there, but there were lots of okay. like kind of these like, you know, what I would say like $10, $15, almost one-off classes. Uh, mm. Obviously, the content from here will grow significantly, but uh, right now, at least in the on Zoom uh, public offerings, I didn't see anything that looked uh, extremely compelling. But I think if you, it's early. It's early. It early. is early. It is yeah. early, and I and I think uh, as we were talking right before we we started record, one of the things that YouTube did a great job of was sharing ad revenue with the the content creators which kept them on the platform and kept them active and encouraged them and and you know if you recall youtube kept kind of moving the carrot so early on they were sharing ad revenue with almost anybody who could garner a few views and then the threshold at which you got compensated continued to increase so they they could uh compensate well those who had big audiences and also encourage those who had uh, you know, medium-sized audiences to grow their their uh, their thing, but they did a good job of keeping all those content creators on the platform while the platform matured and, and built around them. And so, you know, this I think is a is one way Zoom is trying to do that: keep people on the platform, allowing them a way to monetize on the platform. Since the pandemic struck, we've seen a lot of different digital event platforms emerge helping people uh, monetize anything from online courses to, to events to pretty much anything that they could uh, to monetize. Um, so, so that was one big announcement. And then, of course, the introduction of Zaps allows you to bring third-party service providers onto the Zoom platform. And, and this arguably was a, a very natural extension of where they were already going. You're, you're on the Zoom platform throughout the day. They're trying to make it easier just to stay in the Zoom platform and have access to all of these these third party uh, services. Yeah, I, I think uh, a couple of things here. For me, this is especially on Zoom, is the other shoe dropping on a story that we talked about a while back on the podcast, 
of Zoom making itself available on these essentially smart displays that that you just mentioned, Sean, the uh, the Google Nest is smart speakers with a screen, basically from uh, from Amazon and Google. And uh, I, you know, it was a bit of a head scratcher to me. Are people really doing video? calls from these kinds of devices um, and and it to me it raises a question of how how serious is zoom about this you know is this a flirtation that they've just found themselves in a position where they're just getting a huge number of eyeballs every day and they would be foolish not to at least try to capitalize on that uh, because, of course, their message to their investors for a long time has been, you know, we're, we're focused on corporate video uh, conferencing. Uh, you know, we've got Zoom rooms, we've got all this high-end stuff uh, because the, the uh, consumer stuff, you know, that, that's going to be Skype and, and Google Hangouts and, and things like that. And it's been fascinating to see the consumer video players um, shift to more enterprise focused tools that they're marketing to enterprise as well as consumer. Uh, so Teams, you know, is uh, rapidly uh, overtaking Skype in, in Microsoft's video strategy. And today we saw that uh, Google continues to kind of dismantle Hangouts, uh, you know, for months it's been pushing Meet uh, Google Meet as the competitor to uh, to Zoom, and now it's bringing out the chat piece uh, into its own app as well. So uh, Zoom may have uh, it's it's tough to tell whether you know Zoom is is chasing into the consumer space or if they're leading all their enterprise competitors into the consumer space and and what kind of impact that will have on them. Well, and we, throughout the history of tech, we had enterprise products move into the consumer space. And then it was kind of later that you saw consumer products move into the enterprise space. So go the other direction. I am being a great example where that started mm -hmm. really on the consumer side and then moved into the, into the enterprise space. Um, I, I think to your but point. But not usually the same players, you know, I mean, right. AIM, right, where the, where the I am uh, thing exploded. You know, Microsoft bought Yammer, which was a very AIM or Facebook Messenger-like program. But ultimately, what caught on there was Slack, right. you know, which is a very different kind of paradigm, even though it's basically chat at, at the end of the day, you know, in a very organized structure of rooms with a bunch of add-ons. Um, anyway. Well, and, and to your point, I mean, Slack is another competitor in this space that added video features. Uh, you know, Zoom arguably was there first, and that was their core their core feature was their they, they, really their they had only a, feature. A big partnership with Slack. You know, right. they, they co-marketed. Yeah. Well, and they still do. I mean, you can have Slack as one of these third-party zaps inside of the the, the uh, Zoom uh, environment, and so you, you'll have that tie-in. I, I think what you have now are people staying on the the platform and what's happened is as we have have lived through this pandemic and we're spending more time on video zoom has become a platform and so they're having to release the features that are consistent with being a platform and that means third-party integration that means monetization so they're doing all of the things that will allow them to uh to become a platform it works now when we're in this zoom environment 
nonstop nine to five. And so uh, what you've created now is a way, you know, to do maybe some continuing education for your, your industry or your work, but you could also in the middle of the day, take a, a yoga class right in the, you know, the zoom <laughs> framework, if you wanted to, maybe that's, you know, it's easy. So you don't have to leave the platform. Maybe that will really catch on. The question is uh, how it will look when we're in a much more hybrid environment. So say two years from now, when we are starting to, to presumably be attending more in-person events, when we will be doing, uh, you know, working in offices and, and uh, conference rooms and other things like that, uh, does Zoom still play the role that it does today? Will it, will it replace the, what Slack was prior to the pandemic as a, as a broad communication tool for the workforce and the enterprise and where will zoom fit in and will it be able to retain people on the platform? Absolutely uh, agree, Sean. I, you know, I hear what you're saying about zoom feeling like it has to, you know, stretch its, uh, its, its platform muscles, you know, exp uh, expand its influence there. The problem is everywhere it turns, uh, it's surrounded by, by partners and competitors that also want to do that. And Slack, of course, has done an excellent job of that. Uh, so it will be, uh, it, I, I think it's going to be tough for them to build that platform. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, and they're competing against some very big companies. So the question becomes, does Zoom become Google before Google becomes Zoom? And, and right. I think that's a, a real challenge. And the final story we wanted to hit on was uh, Spotify introducing a, a new music and spoken word format, essentially opening up the platform to creators who want to uh, cre ultimately create a, a playlist that they want to share with others. It's kind of a, a public DJ feature, if you will, that allows uh, people to open up uh, the opportunity to to select the music that you're listening to and, and push that out as a, um, as a, almost like a playlist, but then they can of course add commentary and add other things to it and, and be the, the DJ of the playlist. Of course, Spotify can do this as you've pointed out Ross, because they license the music. And so they're able to play in a space that has been problematic for companies like YouTube that get uh, takedown requests because of copyright violations and so um, we continue to see Spotify expanding beyond just music, really trying to encompass a, a whole suite of, of entertainment. Uh, and you can imagine live DJ sets showing up on the Spotify platform, pre-recorded DJ sets showing up on the, on the platform. Uh, obviously, they've done a tremendous amount in the podcasting arena to build that out. And so you're going to have a mix of audio and, and, uh, you know, professionally, uh, orchestrated music together with podcasts and other things like that, really continuing to build out that, uh, that platform. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how many applications this has. It may be, a, a relatively narrow, uh, appeal to a relatively narrow group of creators. Uh, but I really like it. I, I like how it melds, the idea of uh, playlists and personality, uh, you know, kind of 
if it, even you know back to to our childhood uh, Sean where people would create mixtapes uh, right. for each other and and being able to uh, include a bit of a personalization to that it essentially allows uh, anyone to become their own uh, Casey Kasem and and host their own uh, American Top 40 type show, but with any genre of music, not not just Top 40. And of course, uh, that's that's what the internet is all about: being able to explore those uh, those subgenres. If you are, you know, the world's biggest uh, Barry Manilow fan, uh, and you know, you want to take people on a music journey of of his career with what every song means to you. Uh, and I, I am thinking of someone specifically when I when I <laughs> relay this story. I won't I won't call them out. Uh, but um, uh, it's uh, you know this is this is the perfect uh, platform for for you to do something like that. Uh, unfortunately, I guess for Spotify, one of the other companies that's in the best position to do this is Apple, uh, because they also, of course, have have their own music service and uh, is their most uh, formidable competitor. Uh, but uh, but I I, uh, I I think it could lead to a lot of cool content. Yeah, and and it, uh, the the product allows their service allows listeners to essentially interact with the playlist, so they can obviously like the playlist, like the song, but they can also pick individual songs out of mm. the the playlist. So unlike a uh, mixtape where you had to listen to it essentially from start to finish, and you couldn't extract one song and put it somewhere else. It allows you to, you know, extract songs. So uh, you gave the Barry Manilow example. You could also imagine this showing up in e emerging songs. You know, if you wanted to, sure, uh, a curator. Yeah. yeah, if you wanted to get exposure to some new artists or artists from a certain area, you're probably going to have people who say, you know, I'm going to highlight all the bands in in Washington D.C. area, and I'm going to talk about where they're from, what their genre is. So there, there's some really interesting curation that might take place. And, um, you know, I think there's... I think some... it'll be awesome for college radio stations. Yes, uh, I can definitely. see a lot of those DJs loving this kind of thing. It also reminds me a little bit of a, a modern take on... Uh, there used to be this trend of music blogs where people mm -hmm. would you know, post MP3s and write blog posts about the songs. Uh, and, you know, this, uh, now you don't have to deal with the file because it's all hosted uh, and you can just talk to it. You don't have to uh, uh, write paragraphs of text uh, about what you want to say. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what people do with this. Yeah, and, and I think it does, uh, you know, it speaks a lot to Spotify's overall strategy. Uh, it was, I think, pretty much late last year when they started to make major investments in the podcast space. And it looked like, at least early on, that these podcasts were just going to sit next to uh, the other music content that people were consuming. And, and you know, they were going to kind of have just more options. Uh, Apple still is the very big dog when it comes to podcasts. But this opens us up to an entirely new genre, and it really is this kind of hybrid that exists between what a podcast is today and, and what just straight music listening is. So it'll be interesting to see if, if uh, Spotify is able to essentially curate an entirely new audience from these type of, of offerings. Uh, well, that's probably a good place to end this week's episode of Techspansive. Again, I'm Sean Dubervac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter 
at Frost Rubin. <laughs>